Hey, what's happening, everybody? This is Bobby Borg's USC Marketing Class, and you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee Podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. Fight on! For music business worldwide, the major record companies release around 3,900 tracks every day. Their problem? That's a drop in the ocean. From the LA Times, as government threatens TikTok shutdown, the music industry holds its breath. And from various sources, what is artificial intelligence and how will it impact the future of music? Mm. Yes, and we're going to condense that into a slightly less than an hour show, but we're going to work (laughs) on it. So Jay and I are ready to start hitting the button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution is Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, welcome and good to see you, brother. Ah, good to see you. Um, we we <laughs> had our weekend. usual pregame where we've been talking for almost an hour before we hit record, but there's just so much going on and um, in the news and in our lives and with music. Uh, anyway, great to see you. <laughs> you too. And it's uh, and spring is here. It feels like spring for the first time in a long time. So it's uh, I'm sneezing and it's uh, I, I can just after all the rain we've had and it's just the 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 hills are green. We oh, they really snow are. Snow on the mountains around here. It's it's been a wild wet winter. Which is yeah, fantastic. it looks it looks like a whole nother area, a whole nother state. Um, before we jump in today, um, I saw this thing in the Wall Street Journal. Um, four best portable Bluetooth speakers. And, and I was reading through that. It was by Jeff Morrison. And then I find out that you actually know uh, Jeff Morrison. And I wanted to tell our audience what was really interesting in this uh, article in the Wall Street Journal was, Jeff says, and I quote, I also spoke to Mike Etchart, the co-host of Your Morning Coffee podcast and the former host of producer of the Pop Tech and Sound and Vision radio shows. Before that, he was senior director of marketing and product development at Universal Music Group. And uh, tell us a little bit about Jeff and about this uh, <laughs> Trust Us yeah, he's a great guy. Uh, I he used to be a writer for Sound and Vision magazine when I did their radio ah. show, and uh, he's he writes for both CNET and Wall Street Journal now. And you know he's a he's an audio guy, a music fan, and uh, I've just known him for gosh 
15 years now, probably. And so periodically he reaches out and says, hey, I'm doing an article on this. Do you want to weigh in on something or other? So uh, so it's always fun to to have that conversation. And he's he's a super talented guy and a very wide ranging author. He also does a travel, the whole section on travel and He's uh, he's and a very wire talented. cutters. Wire yeah, cutters. He used to write thing. for Wire Cutter, and yeah. he's uh, so you know, like a lot of those freelance guys, they always have multiple gigs. They're always writing for different magazines, and I know he's written for Forbes over the years. And love it. Uh, it's and that's kind of the magazine, or now the you know the online world for for content like that. It's it's basically propped up by a lot of these freelancers that do a yeah. lot of writing. And so um, he also does Soundstage Solo, I think now, which is a website on headphones and. And all kinds of stuff like that. So good guy. Yeah. yeah well, so thank you. Flattered that he called me. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff uh, Morrison, Wall Street Journal. It's always cool to see uh, Mike see your name pop up. Um, I want to uh, give a special thank you to Bobby Borg and his USC music business class for that cool uh, intro <laughs> to the podcast. Yes. That was really special. Thank you, Bobby. He's if you don't know Bobby, you know he's been on the show before. Uh, he's an adjunct instructor at USC Thornton School of Music. But he has some really great books uh, that he's written on the music business that I highly recommend. So here are just a few of them that he's written. One is called uh, Business Basics for Musicians. Another is Music Marketing for the DIY Musician. He wrote Introduction to Music Publishing for Musicians. And his latest one is Personal Finance for Musicians. And he sent me a copy of it. It's really good. And... I just asked him this week, um, tell us a few of the uh, key takeaways um, from writing this book, Personal Finance for Musicians. Um, let's listen in. Hey, Bobby, you've, you've written some awesome books for musicians that I highly recommend. Uh, Business Basics for Musicians, Music Marketing for the DIY Musician, Introduction to Music Publishing for Musicians. And recently you released a new book called Personal Finance for musicians. Great resources. Tell us a few key takeaways that you learned while writing your latest book. Okay, good deal. Well, this book is really everything that you should have learned about money management in high school, but didn't. I'll give you five key takeaways. Number one is income. You want to take advantage of every opportunity you can to monetize your music while pursuing a career as an artist so that you don't have to work a dead-end day job. You can license your music in film, television, and video games. You can make or sell beats, or you can make music for meditation. All of these things pay really well, and they provide you with the flexibility so that you can always put your artist career first. Before I got signed to Atlantic Records, I was actually teaching drum lessons. I was doing drum corps. I was playing in cover bands. And all of these things earned me about $7,000 a month so I could cover expenses. If I could do it, so could you. Number two is wants versus needs. When dealing with expenses, you really need to know the difference between what you want and what you really, really need, okay? So what you want is expensive apartments. You want going out to dinner every night. You want cool cars and things like that. But what you need is far more practical. The reason why this is important is because if you want to start taking some of that money you're saving and build wealth, or if you want to take that money and start paying down some of your high interest loans, you need to get your expenses right. Number three is investing. The time to start investing is right now. 
If you're taking that money that you're earning and you're putting it into like a bank savings account that's earning 0.01% interest, the power of your money is going actually down due to something called inflation. So instead, you want to take that money and throw it into something like an index fund that on average earns about 9% on the long term. And the cool thing about index funds is they're also highly diversified. They're made up of thousands of different companies, so the chances of your success are far greater. So just remember, long-term investing always trumps short-term investing. So you have to stay away from those get-rich-quick strategies. And then number four is limiting beliefs. We need to get rid of the beliefs that put barriers to personal finance. For example, I don't need to know about this stuff. I'm just going to get rich and hire a team to do it for me. Well, even if you do get rich and you hire a team, you never want to give control over to somebody without knowing what's going on. Look what happened to rapper Nas. Nas actually got sued by the IRS for $6.5 million dollars because the accountant thought the business manager was handling taxes and the business and the business manager thought the tax account was taking care of taxes. Make no mistake, personal finance is always your responsibility. And then number 5, CPA and CFP. Even though we give you the foundations of money management in this book, each person's situation is unique to them and you need to hire a certified financial player or certified public accountant to sit down and map out a plan that is personal to you. And in the book, we give you guys the tools to actually find these people and also evaluate them as well. So this book is everything that you should have learned about money management in high school written in a simple and easy to read style by a musician for musicians. It's available on Amazon. And if you want to check out any videos, go to bobbyboard.com or youtube.com slash bobbyboard. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bobby. You know, it's so interesting to me, and, and you'll recall this, you know, in our era of being a musician, in our early years, you know, there were so few resources. And it's and then and then when we got in the music business, you know, I went to college and 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 I didn't, there were no music business classes. There were no, there's nothing like that. And it's, a, it's really gratifying. And you've done a really great job of maintaining those relationships through a lot of different programs throughout the country. And there's just some great programs. Oh you know, my you're gosh. In, in, affiliated with many in some way. And I wish they had great, those when, I when wish we they were had in those school. Absolutely. Um, there's, you know, yeah. Bobby, Bobby's class is really great. I've spoken at his class. We're going to talk about, um, the Ohio University in a minute. But before we do, um, there was a really cool study that was released um, by my friend Kristen Jewell, Mapping the Fam, if I can say it correctly, Mapping the Fan Journey in Music and Web3. Um, she did that with the Water and Music team. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this research, um, it, it's really interesting about this fan journey. Yeah, and this report maps the fan journey in music and web three from project discovery to post mint to post mint community engagement based on interviews with twenty two music NFT collectors and experts in the field. And uh, boy, this is this is something that I continually need to, need to educate myself on because it's it makes my head spin, Jay. It's really comprehensive, um, but they also have kind of an executive summary. You know, if you're one of those too long, didn't read type people, you can kind of check out, you know, the the highlights of it. But Kristen and her team did a fantastic job. So mapping the fan journey in music and Web3, check it out. 
in your morning coffee. I'd also like to do a special shout out this week to Josh Antonuccio. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. He's the director of Ohio University Music Industry Summit. Um, super cool event. Each year, the summit features an exclusive gathering of you know prominent artists, music industry leaders, lots of informative panels, interviews, as well as networking opportunities and learning opportunities for anybody who goes to this thing. Yeah, it's the fifth annual event, uh, which is this Wednesday, April 5th and Thursday the 6th uh, on Ohio's Athens campus. The summit is open to both students and professionals. Check this out at no cost. Wow. The 2023 event will have both in-person and virtual options. Speakers, workshops, networking events, and more are being announced now through March. To learn more, jump over to ohio.edu slash music-industry-summit. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, <laughs> dude, can't. I'm driving. I can't write <laughs> this down. And for you, I will include it in the show notes. How's Thank that? you. Thank you, Mike. Um, there was also a really cool um, newsletter. Um, that was sent out this week by Lior Cohen, who's the global head of music at YouTube, if you don't know, and we talk about him often on this uh, podcast, um, talking about uh, basically YouTube shorts. You know, in January of 2023, fan-created shorts, that's their short-form videos, increased the average artist's audience of unique viewers, get this, by more than 80%. This means that fans on shorts are nearly doubling their artists total reach so artists can spend more time doing what they do best you know making great music indeed and not only are fans on shorts growing an artist's total reach by soundtracking their hobbies day-to-day adventures and more they are also becoming new fans by engaging with shorts created by artists artists who uploaded shorts are seeing i'm sorry who upload shorts are seeing outsized returns in january of 2023 artists uh, active on shorts one saw more than 50 percent of their mu- new music channel subscri- subscribers coming directly from their shorts post on average right and while shorts growth has been a wow you know generating 50 billion daily views as of december 2022 Lior says, I'll continue saying again and again that shorts are the appetizer to the entree. They're the entry point, leading fans to discover the depth of an artist's catalog, including music videos, interviews, live performances, lyric videos, and more. And that's a really good point. There are a lot of short-form video platforms out there. We're going to talk about TikTok, which has been in the news. But the difference between TikTok and let's just call out, you know, YouTube shorts is that once you see a video, once you see a short form video, you're right there. If you want to go deeper, if you want to see a live performance, if you want to see, you know, interviews with that artist, whatever it is, you're right there. So it's a deeper experience and we're seeing a lot deeper fan engagement. So check out uh, YouTube shorts, get into it if you're not already. And uh, we'll be watching this growth as we go forward. And I love the sort of metaphor, appetizer to the entree. Yeah. It's a good way of thinking about it. And there's nothing cooler than when you're looking through your email and you just see Lee or Cohen's name, even though I was one of (laughs) two million probably on the list. It's like... Hey, Lior, thanks for reaching out. I, I did. I don't know. I think you and I talked about this. I did get a nice note uh, from Lior a couple of weeks ago, and um, we're working on uh, getting him to speak with us about some of these things. So stay tuned uh, for that. But before we jump into our, uh, our stories this week, we should probably thank our sponsors. 
Yes, we should. How about HypeBot? Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing, how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Ah, uh, yes, Bands in Town. Over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town. I know I do to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform, and it connects over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, artists, they all access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Indeed, and big thanks to the Music Business Association. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us for the Music Biz Conference in Nashville, May 15th through 18th. So Coming big up. Thanks. Yes, indeed, it's going to be here before you know it. Big thanks to Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. And man, one of the things I like to do in Nashville is go vintage guitar shopping. They have a couple of great stores there. So if you're in town and you play guitar, you can also go check out all that great stuff yeah. in Nashville. Yeah, and by absolutely. the way, and who do I get to chat with every time that we do this show? None other than my good friend Jay Gilbert. Jay is a music business consultant. He is the curator, if you don't know by now, of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, Fox Home Entertainment, and of course, yeah. an empire <laughs> and, and a handsome dude. And clearly can't hold down a job. And this, <laughs> this guy sitting across from me drinking coffee, well, he doesn't drink coffee, I do, is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, Universal Music Groups. And also can't hold down a job. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> Hell, a couple of guys that are uh, unemployable, apparently. Clearly. Um, so much to talk about, Jay. And um, <laughs> our first story, really a fun story. Uh, very interesting. This is from Music Business Worldwide. The major record companies release around 3,900 tracks a day. Their problem? That is a drop in the ocean. It is by our friend Tim Ingham. Yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, and oh my God, it's just when you talk about just the volume of stuff being uploaded to the to the services, it's just mind numbing. Yeah, and this the, I learned a lot from this article. Me um, too. I did not know that it was really only about four percent of what's uploaded is coming uh, from the majors. That was really surprising to me. But it makes sense when you see the IFPI report, which we discussed last week. Um, and this is part of a series from Music Business Worldwide. It's called Music Business Worldwide Explains. And it's a series of analytical features where they explore the context behind mu- major music yeah. industry uh, news. Um, so, and they also kind of suggest what they think might uh, happen next. Yeah, indeed. So they kind of talk about, it says, you know, as they say, what's the context and they say perhaps the most enlightening page in the, uh, which we talked about, the IFPI Global Music Report, um, was uh, carrying succinct reactions from the three heads of the majors to the current state of the market. 
So we're talking about the three heads of the majors who we all know and love. Mm-hmm. They say there's some positivity from from Sir Lucian Grange, Rob Stringer of, of course, Lucian Grange at Universal, Rob Stringer at Sony, and Robert Kinsel over at Warner Music Group in three in these statements. But there's also a clear call for caution regarding regarding threats to the industry's health. Some of this caution is directed toward the future potential impact of artificial intelligence on music, of course, Mm -hmm. but the biggest note of concern, especially from Universal and Sony, is the very much already here impact of the deluge of DIY distributed releases hitting Spotify and others today. Right, and to be Uh, clear, when they say DIY, they're talking about DistroKid, CD Baby, TuneCore, AWOL, you know, a lot of these uh, distributors, some people call them aggregators, where, you know, I knew, because we had reported on that DistroKid, you know, was well over a third of all music that's uploaded to DSPs every week, so I knew there were big numbers, but I didn't realize that it was 96%. And uh, Tim Ingham, you know, goes on to say that in in his comments, Universal's Grange calls for the music industry to focus on building, quote, an environment in which great music is not drowned out by an ocean of noise. And then Sony CEO Stringer, you know, committing to Sony's, quote unquote, high quality output encourages his music business peers to remain vigilant against any race to the bottom offered up to the consumer and Last summer, Music Business Worldwide quoted him explaining to Sony investors that his company was primarily, you know, via its ownership of The Orchard and AWOL, that they were casting our nets deeper and deeper to bring increased volumes of independent music into Sony's distribution center. Right. And it says part of the reason Sony's doing this, obviously, is to fight the inevitable market share erosion that all of the majors face from the glut of independent releases now hitting platforms. Mm. Uh, But he also seemed to suggest to his investors that there was a certain minimum level of quality in music that Sony Music was unwilling to fall beneath, even on a distribution basis. Tracks which he memorably termed flotsam and jetsam, just stuff that's taking up market share because of scale. But that's so subjective, you know? Who's to say, you know, know, I'll listen to, you know, today's top hits, and some of those songs are just horrendous. And I'm listening like, what is this? But, you know, it's not meant for me, right? Some of them we reported on one that's like a minute and and a half long. And then they go on, you know, part of this article, and we'll get there in a second. They're, you know, like, should um, a few minutes of rain sounds be worth, you know, some premium song by the Beatles or, or whoever? My opinion on that is, yeah, it should. Because if you're selling an album of rain sounds, that album, like back in the day when before streaming, you paid for that CD or that album, it would cost the same as the yeah. Beatles or, or mm-hmm. Bob Dylan or whatever. And there, there is a value to that. You know, it's if somebody finds value in that, right? So Music Business Worldwide, they've reported on the downward market share impact for the majors and services like Spotify, you know, because of this flood of music but we've never really seen solid verified data, you know, pertaining to the precise scale of the problem from the major record companies until now. Right. Uh, according to Luminate's numbers, just 4% 
of the 98,500 average daily track uplo- tracks uploaded were distributed by the three majors and or their subsidiaries and affiliates. So that is a pretty stunning number. 96% of all of those tracks were distributed by companies outside of the big three. Right. And but let's be clear. Let's Because we hear these numbers uh, bounce mm-hmm. back and forth every single week. There's 100,000 tracks uploaded every day. There's 130,000. There's 50,000. And they're not inaccurate, but they're talking about different things. This 100,000 tracks per day, those are ISRC codes, number one. So yep. let's be clear on that. You know, there are certain songs that are released with they could have a dozen ISRC and that's just a unique identifier for that version of that song. That's number one. And then number Mm -hmm. two is it includes SoundCloud and SoundCloud is a beast. Whereas other DSPs have a hundred million tracks, they have 350 million, you know, there, there's a lot more being uploaded to SoundCloud each week because the barrier to entries low. And I'm not saying that they're, that's a bad thing. There have been some huge artists discovered on SoundCloud and have gone on to uh, amazing things, but that's why that number varies. Um, I think Glenn Peoples had written in his ledger a few weeks ago that if you just looked at Spotify, that number was closer to 50,000 tracks Mm -hmm. on average uploaded a day. But according to this, if you do include SoundCloud into all of this, then that number is going to be closer to a hundred thousand and man, like you said, they're saying that 96% of that is coming outside of the major labels. That's incredible. It's, it's the exact opposite of the way it was when we entered the business. You know, there was just, there were certainly independent record labels. I worked for one and independent artists and things like that, but it's, it's just flipped. So as the article says, what happens now? Uh, we can expect the major record companies to continue to widen the net in a bid to curb the market share damage of this trend and increase the breadth of their independent artist and label distribution businesses because they do have independent artist and label distribution businesses. Right. Over at Universal Music Group, a, near, a new era has begun. For Virgin Music Group, Housing In Grooves, a united global artist label services division that now sits alongside UMG's frontline record groups as an investment priority at the yep. company. So they're putting an exclamation point on that. Sony Music Group continues to increase its relationship with indie talent around the world via The Orchard and AWOL mm-hmm. and recently launched another industri- independent distribution option uh, via Santa Ana, a subsidiary of the Sony majority-owned Alamo Records, one by, uh, which is, uh, they have three now, that's pretty amazing, and at Warner's, um, uh, of course, uh, further empower ADA while building the long-held potential of level music, currently the only open-to-all self-upload DIY distribution platform available that's affiliated with a major music company. So right, right. They've all got something going on, don't yeah. they? Yeah, level music, you know, think of it as their uh, distro kid um, as as part of that WIA ADA um, ecosystem. So, you know, in addition, we can expect to see a continuation of uh, Sir Lucian Grange's, uh, you know, the campaign to adopt a more artist-friendly, artist-centric royalty model. Um, We've been talking about that a lot, you know, with the streaming services. And the aim of financially hampering what he calls the lower quality functional music. Uh, that's that's a slippery slope, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge. For now, at least, this 
Crusade is largely limited to targeting quote unquote bad actors on streaming services like fraudulent activity, bots, spin farms, that sort of thing, and raising questions around whether, for example, a track that offers nothing more than the sound of rain falling deserves the same royalty payment as a professional recording of an artist's original composition. Man, that again, it, you talk about a spoken word or a comedy album versus, you know, these uh, nature sounds or something to help you sleep. Uh, I think art is art. And it's it gets a little difficult when you start placing a value on... Uh, you know, different artists and different uh, art that they create. Yeah. So that's, and, and it's yeah. not that I don't disagree necessarily, but I, I just don't know how you fairly, unless you just say, and it, we kind of touched on this last time, you know, if, if you're one of the main distributors, do you kind of have a conversation with your customers and say you have zero listens or you've had 10 or less spins in the last two years? Is, is it, worth still having those things around? I, even that's a slippery slope. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we covered that last week and we talked about how, you know, right now they're not doing that. But if you follow, um, you know, what's going on at TikTok with some of the things that they're charging for, it's not out of the question to think that DSPs could say, look, you know, you're, it costs us money to have these servers. <laughs> and um, if you're not streaming a certain number, then either you're pulled down or you have to pay, you know, there's all sorts of things that could happen. I hate to see that happen because it's not always about popularity. It's uh, quality in some of the things mm -hmm. like I'd be a horrible A&R person because a lot of the things that I absolutely love <laughs> aren't big like Lizzo and Taylor Swift. And there's nothing wrong with Lizzo and Taylor Swift, but let's get into the final thought uh, part of this this piece because I thought it was really interesting because they have a, a graph that shows the new ISRCs. And remember, for those that don't know, an ISRC code is just a code for the master and every version of it. So if you have a song, each, each version of that is going to have a separate ISRC code. And you'll hear us talk about the ISWC, and that's really on the um, publishing side. So new ISRCs created each year. Um, at the end of last year, 33% of all ISRCs in Luminate's universe created in 2021 and 2022, 46% were created since the beginning of 2020. And what that's showing is that there's this increase. And I think the pandemic lockdown had something to do with that, but there's this increase every year of the amount of songs that are uploaded. And what they said is, you know, think about this, almost half of, of all of the music available today was released in the pandemic or post-pandemic. Wow. Era. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's not going down, it is going up. And, you know, we're going to talk about AI in a second. And, you know, you can just kind of look down the highway and see that, well, if there are a lot of these tools that simplify at the very least the, the music making process, um, there's just that this onslaught of, of, of uploaded music will only exponentially, in my eyes, get even larger. Yeah. So it's a stunning, stunning situation we find ourselves in. And like you said, it's a slippery slope. You know, how do you tell me? Yeah. that my music is not valued and that it's going to maybe come down or it yeah. should, or I'm taking up too much oxygen in, in the system. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. 
Yeah, um, it's it's definitely a slippery slope. But before we move on to the next one, I just want to highlight what you said because it's it's my big takeaway from this thing, you know, that Rob Jonas, you know, from Luminate pointed out, you know, at first that, you know, a third of the 196 million audio and video music tracks on digital services today were released either 2021 or 2022. He, he said, and I, I know you mentioned this, but I want to kind of highlight this point that if you add the 26 million tracks created in 2020, it means that just under half of all musical content that they're tracking just under half you know, had been created since the beginning of 2020. And that's just stunning. So really great piece. Um, we always enjoy uh, Tim Ingham and Music Business Worldwide. Don't miss their podcast. Um, I think I mentioned I got a really nice note from Tim a week or two ago. Um, and uh, it's it, it's pretty cool because I, I felt like, you know, um, Chris Farley interviewing uh, Elton or no, Paul McCartney wasn't Elton John. And uh, yeah, because I've, I've looked up to Tim for a long time and read his stuff. And you and I have talked about it, uh, you know, for a long time. And it was just really cool that he reached out. So thank you, Tim. Nice. Yeah, I hope to meet him someday, of course, based in the UK. So we don't have an opportunity to see some of those folks from Music Business Worldwide. I met him just briefly at the oh, Music you? Tectonics conference, not this last one, but the one before he had given a uh, presentation. And afterwards I just went up and said, Hey, we have some mutual friends, shook his hand and just said, Hey, love your work. It was just a really quick high kind of thing, but he was very, uh, very uh, nice, very charming. Cool. All right. Well, maybe one of these days I will catch up with him as well. So Jay, let's jump into the next story, shall we? Yeah, this is uh, actually it's a series of stories, but we're going to focus kind of on a couple of them. One is from the LA Times, and the headline is, As Government Threatens TikTok Shutdown, the Music Industry Holds Its Breath. But there were three other stories in your morning coffee about what's going on at TikTok, and each one had a really interesting take. The second piece was from Billboard, and the headline, and we'll talk about this in a second, was five ways a TikTok ban might affect the Billboard charts. That was a cool take. Then one from Hypebot, U.S. government has offered no valid reasons for a TikTok ban. And then the last one was uh, from eMarketer, and they, they showed five charts showing where people and advertisers would go after TikTok. And as we jump into this, <laughs> you know, whenever the government gets involved, it's it's interesting for me because it's I know a lot of them their hearts are in the right place, but they need to use the app so they speak about it intelligently because some of these politicians clearly had never used TikTok and didn't know what it did or no. or how it worked. And and I find that just lazy. So I'll kick it off by saying that in the past several years, TikTok has become obviously the dominant platform for artists to make a name for themselves, uh, not only via their short form videos, but you know the work of others who use their music to soundtrack their own content. Indeed. So artists from Doja Cat to Lizzie McAlpine to iSpice, to name but a few, have enjoyed meteoric rises thanks in part to the platform connecting with fans through humor, authenticity, or both. The app has also given second life to songs whose moment had seemingly passed. 
Look no further than uh, we all remember yeah. Fleetwood Mac's mm-hmm. uh, the, their 1977 hit Dreams, which resurfaced on the Billboard Hot 100 back in 2020. <laughs> from 1977. This, from 77 with a kid skateboarding and yeah. singing the song. That was so good. Last year, TikTok's end of the year report highlighted that all but one of the 14 songs that topped the Billboard Hot 100 were driven by significant viral trends on TikTok. Wow. What? I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. All but yeah. one of the 14 songs that topped the Billboard Hot 100 were driven by TikTok. You know, from Harry Styles, As It Was, Jack Harlow's First Class, and Steve Lacey's Bad Habit. Yeah, indeed. Um, and the early day, as this is uh, Bill Wordy speaking, he says, in the early days of streaming, people said it would democratize music, uh, said Bill, who directs Syracuse University's Bandier music mm-hmm. program and publishes the full rate, no cap newsletter. Highly recommend uh, it. But I don't think it did, because when you lower the bar- that barrier of entry, it becomes very difficult to break through. Major labels and other companies and artists with substantial marketing budgets were really advantaged on Spotify. TikTok came along, though, and really turned that notion <laughs> on its head. Anyone could break on TikTok, and anyone did break. That's right. In the United States, however, TikTok faces an uncertain future, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Earlier this month, the White House endorsed a bill that would give President Biden the authority to ban TikTok in the United States or force the parent company ByteDance that, you know, they own this app to sell the American sell it to an American company. Government officials called the app a national security threat, citing the potential for China to force ByteDance to turn over the data of its American users or spread misinformation to turn its citizens against the country. Indeed. Uh, Yeah. Last Thursday, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle peppered TikTok chief executive uh, Xiao Zichu, I think is how it's pronounced. I think so. uh, During a a congressional hearing demanding answers on everything from data data privacy to drug use while generally appearing unaware (laughs) of how the app actually worked. You saw that. (laughs) That's my complaint. thing to watch. I know. Right. And and it wasn't just me, you know, um, Jonathan Daniel from Crush Music. Um, who I'm a big uh, fan of and a friend of. Um, he said that whenever there's something involved with music, like the PMRC, remember the PMRC, Parents Music yeah. Resource Center, right? He mm-hmm. said whenever there's some, some, uh, something involved in music like the PMRC, it feels so weird because the people asking the questions are not that familiar with what it is. Um, and if you don't know, Jonathan, you know, he runs Crush Music, Miley Cyrus, Green Day, Panic at the Disco, um, all sorts of uh, super talented um, people. He, he went on to say, it's not really their fault. The people grilling TikTok, they probably just get on the app when they start the started the investigation. They're not experts in it. Right. <laughs> Both Daniel and Wordy called the hearing theater after the members of Congress provided no evidence of actual misuse by the Chinese government. Still, both say there's a realistic chance the government follows through with the ban. What effect a shutdown would have on the music industry is really up for debate. Uh, Currently, uh, TikTok boasts a billion monthly active users worldwide. 150 million, that's right, 150 million of whom live in the U.S. While TikTok was the first and many feel the best, 
to develop a discovery-based algorithm centered around short-form videos. Heavyweight competitors, Meta and Google, have released similar products in Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts, respectively. Yeah, we just talked about YouTube Shorts. So labels and A&R reps have become really reliant on TikTok um, to sign new artists, to market their existing ones. Now, several years removed from TikTok's initial burst, Jonathan Daniel feels a shift from the label side is already happening. He notes that how it's relatively easy to have a song go viral, but harder for the artist artist to sustain momentum beyond the initial interest. And we always say that TikTok's the easiest platform to gain those views, but the hardest to gain real uh, lasting engagement. Right. So Jonathan goes on to say, I definitely hear rumblings from the big labels that it's not as not as worth it to chase those songs. They want to go back to building mm. artists. Wordy agreed that label executives have become too reliant on TikTok, but understands the impulse. Companies want to invest in fan bases. He said they want to see that an artist has some foundation to build on. Yes, he continued, labels do sometimes over-index on things that work. That's an interesting phrase, over-index mm-hmm. on things that work. But at the same time, we've never really seen anything work the way TikTok is working. You have to go back to the days of TRL on MTV to find a platform capable of moving the needle the way TikTok does. Wow, those are uh, very important yeah, I, points. Those were the days. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, you know? TRL. Totally. Um, Total so, Request Live, is that what it's different? Yeah, to? Yeah, t- yeah. Yeah, Total Request I mean, Live. Eminem even uh, raps about it in one of his songs. So That's right. Um, there was another piece that I thought was really good. I mean, all of them were, but the one that we're going to cover is from Andrew Uderberger from Billboard. And he his article was basically the five ways a TikTok ban might affect the Billboard charts. And that's what people are sort of buzzing about. So I'll take number one. So these are the five ways TikTok ban might affect the Billboard charts. Number one, he says fewer older songs becoming new hits. One of the most consequential trends in the 2020s pop chart is has been the preponderance of catalog entries infusing all levels of the Hot 100, whether it's extreme examples like Kate Bush's Stranger Things, you know, with running up that hill, reaching top five in 2022, or more subtler cases like Chris Brown's 2019 Indigo Deluxe Edition cut under the influence, becoming a 2023 top 20 hit. You know, one thing nearly all of these revived hits have in common is TikTok. Whether its newfound popularity was initially reignited there, as with influence, or whether gasoline was poured on the already existing flame, as with running up that hill. These hits would never have reached the velocity needed to break out without the app. Yeah. He cites uh, as number two, fewer one-offs. Back in 2020, Billboard wrote about a number of artists TikTok had helped launch into the pop mainstream with one song and asked if the app would be able to help sustain extended careers for them as hit makers, ba- as hit makers. based on the great majority of the artists mentioned in the story, Arizona Zervas, Tones, uh, Tones and I, Palfu, St. John, Surfaces, Trevor Daniel, uh, the answer would appear to be no. Mm. After their initial TikTok-boosted chart success, none of those artists have yet charted a second top 40 or top 100 or hot 100 hit. And most have yet to even scrape the chart a second time. Wow. And that's why Jonathan Daniel has been saying, you know, you don't necessarily want to chase 
these types of artists. Bigger yeah. and longer lasting album bombs is number three. Bigger and longer lasting album bombs. Without the natural rise and fall of TikTok virality to help generate prominent movement up and down the Hot 100, uh, Stasis will be even more unavoidable, unavoidable on the chart. So while that may be felt in every tier of the chart, it will perhaps be most noticeable in the middle and lower regions, which without TikTok-driven hits will become even more the province of the biggest albums of recent weeks. Yeah, they also he also points out a number four less alternative and in, in less alternative slash indie artists and regional Mexican artists. One way TikTok's imprint has been felt on the Hot 100 has been the rise in crossovers from the indie and alternative worlds. Hits from bands like Glass Animals, The Walters, Maniskin, and singer songwriters like David, Lizzie McAlpine, and Mac DeMarco all have found their way to the chart after gaining popularity on the app, where five years ago they likely would have had no real pathway to that kind of uh, crossover success or on streaming or radio with any kind of guitar-based rock music and increasingly rare presence in the pop mainstream. Wow. And the last one, number five, longer chart runs, but fewer truly historic ones. As already mentioned, TikTok, the success is one of the primary accelerants on the Hot 100 these days. The force that gets songs zooming up and plummeting down the chart with disruptive speed. And without it, a lot of songs are going to stay in place for a very long time. The slowing pace of radio and streaming in the 2020s has already resulted in seemingly endless, borderline historic stays for hits like Dua Lipa's Levitating, Kid Leroy, Justin Bieber, Harry Styles, so in the chart's top regions. And certainly without TikTok, there will be even fewer impediments for those songs staying in place for as long as the mainstream will have them. So lots of great coverage on TikTok. We're going to have to see if it gets banned in the U.S., if it's sold to a U.S. company. There's a lot of concern about the data going to China. Um, it's going to be super interesting to see how this all develops. Well, and if you were to look into your crystal ball, Jay, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's going to be really, really difficult. Uh, I mean, it's going to turn the industry upside down because... It's such a important, it's an important tool uh, today for developing artists. So what I think is going to happen um, is that it won't be banned, but let's say I'm wrong and it is, or, you know, it's, it's shut down for some reason. I think there will be a replacement that's based in the U.S. rather quickly um, because, remember, TikTok kind of grew from the ashes of Musical.ly and, you know, all of these platforms, you know, like Facebook, you know, kind of grew from MySpace. And, you know, there's always something next, right? And I think that if it is shut down, that quickly something else will happen. And the last thing I'll say on it is, you know, I was using Skype for podcasts and for everything. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden it's Zoom and it's everywhere. I yeah. thought I thought it was too big to fail, so to speak. And if history has taught us anything, it's like nothing's irreplaceable. No. Absolutely not. But it's, I think the, you know, and, and don't forget this was, <clears throat> this was brought up by the Trump administration as well at the time, but I right. think this is kind of another uh, sort of impact on what's going on in Ukraine. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a much more sensitivity to kind of some of the bad actors such as Russia and China. And, 
you know, they do have these campaigns, these uh, that they that they do around the world. And I think I understand the concern, but I do think the timing is is different this time. And I think it may lead to some sort of change, whatever that may be. And I don't I can't see that for that far into the future. But it feels like this time there's a little more sense of urgency, even though with all the theatrics and kind of the the goofiness of, of senators or representatives kind of uh, yeah. not really knowing what they're talking about when it comes to the app, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of it. But I do think the the ownership of that, I, I understand the concern and I don't think it's unwarranted, but yeah. we'll kind of see where it goes. Very yeah. interesting times. Yeah. yeah, it sure is. So our next and final story is from a, a lot of different sources and it's been probably the hottest thing in the music industry other than this TikTok issue and that is artificial intelligence and how it's going to impact the future of music. So there were five articles this last week in your morning coffee on artificial intelligence, AI. One was from the New York Times, um, what is artificial intelligence? Number two was how generative AI can transform functional music into an artist-driven experience. That's a mouthful. That was from Billboard. That is a mouthful. Indeed, number three was the Human Artistry Campaign, Core Principles in AI. That was on, uh, from A2IM. Yeah, and, and how will AI impact the future of music um, from complex that's right. And then a guy, some guy named Elon Musk mm-hmm. and Apple, this is number five, uh, Apple co-founder, joined hundreds of tech and science leaders calling for six-month pause on, in quotations, training of AI systems more powerful than GBT4 from Music Business Worldwide. Yeah, you know, and, and num- number six, U.S. Copyright Office says AI songs can be copyrighted, in parentheses, sometimes. Um, but be, before we dig into this and, and we have a really interesting take from our, our good friend and one of the smartest people we know, uh, Chris Castle. Um, but before we get into that, let's explain a little bit what generative artificial intelligence is. Yeah, it, it's a, all this stuff is so head spinning and it's really easy to get confused. Uh, I wake up every morning confused, but let's <laughs> talk about it's indeed. So generative AI is a subset of artificial intelligence that uses algorithms to generate new content from existing data in the form of images, text, or music. Uh, this AI has mainly ex- has, has many accessibility and creativity benefits. However, the tracking of digital copyrights, or IP, in the form of data, which taken apart and pieced together, back together via algorithms to create new works, presents a layered and complicated logistical and legal puzzle. And yeah, it does. An understatement to say the least. <laughs> it sure does. And, and look, whenever we want to understand new technologies as they relate to the music business, one of our first calls is typically to uh, Chris Castle. And if you don't know or you haven't heard us talk about Chris, you know, he's a music industry attorney, a friend, a guru, mentor, and really an advocate for artists and songwriters. And he, he has uh, a lot of different uh, irons in the fire. One is music technology policy, which I highly recommend uh, to everyone to check out. Yes, and his firm handles public policy and artist rights, music clearance for uh, political campaigns, valuation, compliance, and litigation, Music Modernization Act compliance, and works with artists, songwriters, and producers, music users, app developers, app developers, <laughs> and startups. Wow. And he is a very funny guy. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's got a great he, sense of humor. He has a great sense of humor. So I spoke to Chris this uh, last week, and I asked him for a little clarity on AI and artist rights, and I learned a lot 
lot. Let's let's listen in. Chris, thanks so much for talking with me today. We're talking about AI. You know, there's a couple of uses that are pretty popular right now. One involves using AI to create a musical work or complete a musical work, you know, based on your own work. Um, but there's one, there's another use that I find more interesting. And that is when you're, and this is a hot topic in the music business today, using AI that draws from an artist's body of work to create a new work and, you know, kind of in the style of that. And, and I'd love to get your take on that. Right. Well, um, I think the first thing you have to get straight is that, um, you often hear the fr- hear the phrase, "Wow, it created that from scratch." <laughs> you know, no, it didn't. <laughs> there is no any any kind of you call it applied or foundational AI as opposed to general AI. You know, any of that is just drawing on um, a, a very large database sometimes, but a um, database of something, right? Right. And it's using that to, and maybe in a creative way, but it is using that material uh, to create something else. So when you talk about um, musical works or, or, or breaking it apart, lyrics, for example, like if you were to you, you were to feed a bunch of lyrics into, uh, uh, the, like say Chat GPT, which is basically just an alpha launch right. <laughs> it's one of the bigger alpha launches that there's ever been but you know uh it's essentially an alpha launch if you just feed a bunch of that material into that um AI, it's going to be drawing on that material to create something along the lines of what it's asked to create right it's going to be drawing exclusively from whatever its training materials are and that's where the training materials is really kind of where the rubber meets the road with this stuff because that it's undeniable that at the moment anyway that that material comes from someplace <laughs> and it's drawn on by the by the uh, algorithm right so in that sense it's kind of like a sample right and it's it's not the way we're used to thinking of samples but it functionally it it's pretty much the same as samples right in other words there's some um pre-recorded work involved and and we're changing it in some ways we're adding uh filters or we're adding autotune or we're mixing it with another sample or you know there there's different and then some original recording you know there's different ways that you deal with samples well there's different ways that the algorithm deals with um you know, it's training materials, right? So samples are really kind of like training materials. And if you think of it that way, I I often say that that when you get into licensing these new technologies, you help yourself if you can make something new look like something old from a licensing perspective, right? Um and, and the reason for that is because there's a business practice involved, there's a royalty system involved, there's precedence involved. Now, you can pick and choose which of those you want to perpetuate in the new model, and we'll probably need to have some adjustments. But basically, this is no different than sampling. Well, that was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, very interesting. Yes. And, um... Yeah, I mean, he he's 
really are kind of our go-to uh, guy. And not all of this is on the record. Sometimes we'll just text each other about uh, certain uh, things. And listen, we learned really about the CRB um, originally through uh, Chris. And, you know, he had mentioned um, this human artistry campaign. So for more information on where all of this is going, um, you can be a part of it. Check out Human Artistry Campaign at humanartistrycampaign.com. And, you know, we'll, we'll drop a, a link in the show notes uh, to Human Artistry Campaign. Right. And there you'll find seven core principles for artificial intelligence in support of human creativity and accomplishment. Number one he mentions in this or or is mentioned in this is uh, technology has long empowered human expression and AI will be no different. Right. Number two, human created works will continue to play an essential role in our lives. Right. Number three, the use of copyrighted works and the use of voices and likenesses of professional performers requires authorization, licensing, and compliance with all relative laws, Mm -hmm. relevant laws. Right. Number four, governments should not create new copyright or other IP exemptions that allow AI developers to exploit creators without permission or compensation. And number five, copyright should only protect the unique value of human intellectual creativity. Mm -hmm. Number six, trustworthiness and transparency are essential to the success of AI and protection of creators. Right. And number seven, creators' interests must be represented in policymaking. And again, that's the Human Artistry Campaign at humanartistrycampaign.com. And again, that will be in the show uh, links. And well, you know, it's, it is, it's, now that you know listening to Chris and kind of kind of looking at this from sort of 10,000 feet you can kind of see all right I do see how there there is stuff on the books that we can kind of uh, that will apply to this yes and um, there are people much smarter than me thinking about this already it's coming as we have said you know every time we talk about it it's here as a matter of fact that's and right it's it's in use and has been in use really well before we started talking about it and, right uh, yeah, it's, and I kind of thought, lot, sorry, I kind of thought that the technology was way in front of uh, the law and the business. And what my conversation with Chris really uh, informed me was that's not really the case, that there are um, laws in place um, that we can lean on today as we kind of revise and update them for the future. So uh, thanks again to uh, Chris for helping uh helping us understand that. Yeah. Well, and I'm really excited. You know, we, well, you're, you're now going someplace else. You're not going to be at the NAM show, but I'm going to be at the NAM show in, in, um, gosh, just in a couple of weeks actually yeah. here in Anaheim. And I've already been, you know, pe- folks have reached out to ask me to come by and check out certain things. And there's a lot of AI products in the music creation space. And boy, I can hardly wait to go check them out and see yeah. what's going on. I can't I'm wait sure to hear you report back. Stunning. Oh yeah. It's, um, and I love the NAM show anyway. It's such a gas to go to that. Yeah, I hate to miss it, but I have an stuff. event in Nashville that I've been asked to um, sort of uh, moderate, and I just couldn't pass it up. And I was going to take you out to dinner because you were going to go to NAM, but hey, I can't do that now. So uh, <laughs> bummer. But uh, on that note, we got to wrap up the show, Jay. I'm going to drag my carcass to the gym, I think. Good for and, you. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. So we do want to thank, of course, the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, Bands in Town, for really uh, hap- making it happen for us. We certainly appreciate it. And big thanks to my brother, Jay. We, uh, uh, I always appreciate our Saturday afternoons or Sundays, depending on when we do it. Me too, my friend. And we certainly appreciate all of our folks that listen into the podcast. We could not do it without you. So a thousand thank yous for... For joining us for Jay and I's musings. On yeah, things we really happen. appreciate it. And if you like what you hear, just tell one friend. That's all. That's just right. One. That's all we ask. Really? Come on. You can do that. Just one friend. Uh, so thanks for listening. Jay and I will be back next week. And we will see you then on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.